Ой, что это чон спирачи? Ты шел. Папа часть тобой, чон спирачи, корец. Ой, я урос, Адам тот броун. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Conspiracy the Show. I'm your host, Adam Todd Brown. Joining me as co-host this week, ooh, my favorite co-host of all, no co-host. I am going it alone today. And last week, if you are a subscriber to the bonus episodes, you know that last week's episode was also a solo episode where we talked about a guy named Milton William Cooper, who is the author of a seminal conspiracy theory book called Behold a Pale Horse. And last week's episode was all about the man who wrote the book, Behold a Pale Horse. This week's episode and the next free episode are both going to be about the book itself, Behold a Pale Horse. If you're listening to this podcast but have never read that book or have not at least heard of that book, I would be genuinely surprised. It is arguably the most influential conspiracy theory book ever published. If your favorite rapper has ever name-checked the Illuminati, and they have, they probably first read about it in this book. Or at least if you're my age and have a favorite rapper, that's the case. I'm sure these young bucks just learn about the Illuminati on TikTok or something. But the popularity of this book has not been at all diminished by the rise of the internet and social media. As I record this, Behold a Pale Horse holds a very modest overall sales ranking of 29,032 in the Kindle store. But it's number four in the UFO category on the Kindle store, number six in the media studies category on the Kindle store, and number four in the occult UFOs section overall on Amazon. Not too shabby, for a book that is more than 30 years old, I would argue. As I mentioned on last week's bonus episode, this was the first conspiracy theory book I ever read. It's the first conspiracy theory book a lot of people ever read. It's a book that first gained popularity among the prison population, especially in New York. I wasn't in a New York state prison in the early 90s, so I won't claim that I learned about it that way, but I was listening to a ton of rap music in the mid-90s, and that was a surefire way to get yourself exposed to Behold a Pale Horse and the New World Order conspiracy theory. That's a big one. It doesn't necessarily start with this book, but Behold a Pale Horse is definitely the Beatles on Ed Sullivan moment for the New World Order conspiracy. That's the point where people really started paying attention and worrying and talking about how worried they were about it. A lot of the conspiracy theories that carry on to this day either got their start from Behold a Pale Horse or were revived by Behold a Pale Horse. There's some stuff in this book that has been around so long, it was discredited by the time this book came out, to the point that some of the things in here were almost completely forgotten. And then along came Behold a Pale Horse to 
bring them roaring back into the public consciousness. Thanks a lot, Bill Cooper. So that's what we're focusing on this week. Again, the specific theories in the book Behold a Pale Horse. Again, if you want to know more about the guy who wrote this book, who is absolutely a character, his name, again, is Milton William Cooper. I just call him Bill. Most people just call him Bill. But for more background on him, you can either listen to last week's bonus episode, if you haven't already, or go read the book Pale Horse Rider by Mark Jacobson, which is a 2018 book that profiled Milton William Cooper. And it digs pretty deep into not only his background, but also his life after Behold a Pale Horse. He's an interesting figure. But as for us right now, let's get into the theories in this book. Again, this is going to be a two-part episode. This is a 600-plus page book. You don't want me talking about all of it at once. Not without someone else here to do the cut-em-ups and the yuck-yucks, you know? And one of the first things you have to understand about Behold a Pale Horse is that while it does, again, clock in at a lengthy 600-plus pages, only about half of it is original writing by Bill Cooper, if that. The rest is just documents and reports and files that Cooper thinks prove his point, presented in their entirety in some cases. And that's especially true in the first chapter of this book, which is a stone-cold classic. It's called Silent Weapons for Quiet Wars. That sure is a cool name. So cool that Wu-Tang affiliate Killer Army named an entire album after it. This is, for all intents and purposes, a lot of people's introduction to the concept of the Illuminati. That happens in this chapter of this book. Aside from an introduction where Bill Cooper says that the copy of the document he shares in this chapter was found in an IBM copier that was purchased at a surplus sale in 1986, and a few notes scattered here and there, which mostly amount to Cooper confirming that he agrees with what you are reading, this entire chapter is just a document called Silent Weapons for Quiet Wars that was not written by Bill Cooper. But according to him, and according to the document both, what it is, is a formal declaration of war by the Illuminati on the citizens of the United States. More specifically, Cooper says Silent Weapons for Quiet Wars is the official doctrine adopted by the Policy Committee of the Bilderberg Group during its first meeting in 1954. I know I haven't mentioned it yet, but Cooper's version of the Illuminati was essentially born in 1954. That's when all of the secret societies of the world that had been jockeying for position in the race to guide world events in their favor decided to team up under one umbrella called the Bilderberg Group. And according to Bill Cooper, the Bilderberg Group is the secret government that has been ruling us all ever since behind the scenes. Fun fact, as mentioned on this week's episode of Unpopular Opinion, not only is the Bilderberg Group still powering on, they are back to working in the office. COVID shut down their annual meeting the last two years, which is weird. You'd think they'd know how to work around COVID, seeing as how they invented it. But nope, it got them too. But no worries, though, because the Bilderberg Group is back. In 2022, their meeting is happening again. And listen, I'm not for one single second going to pretend the Bilderberg Group isn't 
a huge cause for concern. It really is heads of state, heads of corporations, and the American and British intelligence communities coming together once a year to decide how life is going to go for the rest of us that year. And when you add to that the fact that the proceedings are so secretive, most journalists have given up trying to cover it in any meaningful way, and that this year's meeting is headed up by the current head of the CIA, this group probably is indeed the closest thing we have to an Illuminati operating in this world. But also that's kind of how you know the Illuminati doesn't exist. And if it does... Jay-Z for sure isn't in it. Jay-Z is rich and powerful, but he's not attend the Bilderberg Group meetings rich and powerful. And we know that because the Bilderberg Group isn't a secret. They operate in secret, and that's concerning. But also, we do at least know who they are. You can look up lists of people who've attended Bilderberg Group meetings, and damn if Beyonce hasn't been there even once. Still, all that said, I don't trust the Bilderberg Group further than I can throw them individually or as a group. I acknowledge that they are most likely not good for the world, but that doesn't mean Silent Weapons for Quiet Wars is an actual declaration of war by the Bilderberg Group against American citizens. In fact, for the longest time, people assumed Bill Cooper just wrote it and didn't admit to it. Part of that has to do with the fact that if you read it, you are likely to be struck with the overwhelming sense that this was not written by the representative of a suave secret government in the 1950s. No, it reads like the rantings of a lunatic. And that is not at all helped by the fact that Bill Cooper in Behold a Pale Horse chose to randomly put words of this text in all caps with no rhyme or reason to it at all. And here's a confusing detail that should give you some pause if you are a true believer in the Silent Weapons for Quiet Wars text. If you are one of those people who read this and thought, yep, that's what's happening. This explains it all. Consider this. On last week's bonus episode about Bill Cooper, I mentioned that a lot of what's in this book started with him allegedly seeing a treasure trove of secret documents in the office of his superior when he was in the Navy back in the 1960s. Documents that covered all sorts of secret knowledge, like what really happened to JFK. He was shot with a shellfish toxin pellet by his limo driver. Thanks for asking. But he also says he saw documents about the Bilderberg group in that office, and that his memories of that were confirmed when this copy of Silent Weapons for Quiet Wars was found in an IBM printer in 1986. Now, according to Bill Cooper, the Bilderberg Group is a secret government that is in fact so secretive, the real government doesn't know about it. But also, what he's saying is that despite the Bilderberg Group being a secret government that is so secret, the real government doesn't know about it. The real government did somehow have a bunch of files about that secret government that is so secret, the regular government doesn't know about it. Well, then where'd the files come from? If the real government doesn't know the secret government exists, why did they have files about the secret government? The explanation for that discrepancy is that this isn't a document written by a secret government. As mentioned in the Mark Jacobson book, Pale Horse Rider. In the early 2000s, an outlet called Paranoia Magazine started looking into the origins of this document and traced it back to a man named Hartford Van Dyke, who, fittingly enough, was in prison on conspiracy charges 
at the time. He took credit for writing the document. And fast forward to now, if you search around online, you'll find standalone copies of Silent Weapons for Quiet Wars that credit Hartford Van Dyke as the author. In his letter to Paranoia Magazine, he took issue with them calling Silent Weapons for Quiet Wars a, quote, paranoid manifesto, because he said it was a work of sociopathy instead. Here's a quote. It begins as a logical sociopathic work that ends as an emotional sociopathic work. Being as it is about war, the subject matter had to be sociopathic, end quote. And let me tell you, now that sounds like the words of the person who actually wrote Silent Weapons for Quiet Wars. And Van Dyke says the copy that ended up at that surplus sale in 1986 is probably one he gave to a hitchhiker that he picked up in the 1980s who turned out to be a soldier who asked to be dropped at a military base near where that surplus sale eventually happened. So, sorry, true believers. Silent Weapons for Quiet Wars was almost certainly not written by the Bilderberg Group. But on the bright side, they still probably rule the world. I'm not going to take that away from them. They just don't write rambling manifestos about it. Who would they be sending that thing to anyway? Oh, so many questions. This episode is brought to you by Snapple. Welcome to the Snapple Market Auditory Experience. Close your eyes. Imagine you're walking into your neighborhood store. You make your way to the back and reach for your favorite Snapple flavor. You can't wait. You take a sip. Whoa, that's a lot of flavor. Mmm. What flavor are you holding? Now open your eyes and check out Snapple.com to find ridiculously flavorful Snapple near you. All right, chapter two, Secret Societies and the New World Order. The second chapter of this book is probably the one that contains the highest volume of original Bill Cooper writing. It's basically him running through the entire history of secret societies. He says the first one was called the Brotherhood of the Snake. And here's the thing. That's fucking cool. That's a cool name. The Brotherhood of the Snake worshipped Lucifer and sought personal enlightenment, a.k.a. illumination. Lucifer is the bringer of light, you see, hence the name Illuminati. Cooper says the Brotherhood of the Snake formed around 4000 BCE in response to an enormous stellar explosion that filled the night sky with light. Eventually, the Brotherhood of the Snake split off into a bunch of different groups who all then reunited under the Bilderberg Group banner thousands of years later in 1952. Now, at the point this book was written, Cooper claimed the Bilderberg Group consisted of the following diverse names and faces. The Vatican, the Nazi Party, the KKK, the Jews, the Freemasons, the Roshania of Afghanistan, the Mithras, the Builders, the Brotherhood, the House of Wisdom at Cairo, the Communist Party, the Demolay Society, the P2 Lodge of Italy, the Knights of Malta, the CIA, the Jason Scholars, the Jason Society, the Jason Group, Jason Mraz, the Kabbalah, the Knights of Columbus, the Columbus Blue Jackets, the Jesuits, the Ancient and Mystical Order of Rosicruce, the Council on Foreign Relations, the Group, Chapter 322, the Brotherhood of the Dragon, Imagine Dragons, the Rosicrucians, the Royal Institute of International Affairs, the Trilateral Commission, the Russell Trust, the Skull and Bones, the Scroll and Key, Wendy's, and the Black Nobility. And I only made up 
like four of those. The rest, all actually alleged to be part of the Bilderberg group by the author of Behold a Pale Horse. So that part of the chapter is all interesting and informative, I suppose. But then it gets into the predictions for the future and everything falls apart. Specifically, the prediction that NASA's Galileo spacecraft was, in fact, a thermonuclear device that was scheduled to detonate inside the core of Jupiter on the last day of 1999. And this was going to be heralded by the people behind the Bilderberg Group as the dawn of a new religion, which would be announced by President Bush the first at the Egyptian pyramids. Oh, also global warming is a lie. And the real problem is that we're looking down the barrel of a new ice age and blowing up Jupiter would heat the planet enough to prevent that. Remember when all of that did not happen on the last day of 1999? None of it. Not a single bit. He makes up a lot of other wild claims in this chapter, like how once a year, the Russians meet with reps from the Bilderberg group to discuss that year's agenda and that one year it included colonizing space, and that he is in possession of satellite images of a secret base inside a crater on the moon. But somehow that picture is not in this book. There are pictures in this book. He very easily could have inserted a photo of said base inside a crater on the moon, but he didn't. Just didn't. That's fine. Why would you, you know? Also, he says Russia has to meet with the Bilderberg group in submarines because it's the only way they can't be recorded or tracked. And my question is, why would they care if anyone's recording or tracking them? They are the secret government that is ruling the entire world. Who's going to undo that? Some looky-loo at the NSA is going to overhear their conversation and bring it all crumbling down? I don't think so. Seems unlikely. If they are as powerful as Bill Cooper makes them out to be, I don't know that overhearing their talks with Russia would really do that much to slow down operations. But what do I know? In this chapter, he also gets into all the points where the number 13 is present on the U.S. dollar. There's 13 leaves in the olive branches, 13 bars and stripes, 13 arrows, 13 letters in E Pluribus Unum, on and on and on. And people always bring this up and point to it being a Freemason thing or an Illuminati thing, because the number 13 is very important to Freemasons. But also, we do remember there were 13 original colonies, right? That could also be the foundation that the 13 blocks in the pyramid on the back of the dollar represent. Could be those original 13 colonies. Maybe. Anyway, chapter three, Oath of Initiation of an Unidentified Secret Order. If chapter two is an example of Bill Cooper actually holding up his end of the I wrote a book bargain by, you know, writing, then chapter three is its polar opposite. The chapter, again, is called Oath of Initiation of an Unidentified Secret Order. Bill Cooper makes it clear that he does not make any claims as to the authenticity of the oath presented in this chapter. He says a woman handed it to him and that it was something her son had to pledge allegiance to before joining some unknown secret society. But also he got a copy of it from a Dr. Ron Brown, who said it came from the Congressional Record of the House of Representatives dated February 15th, 1913, where it was entered as purported to be from the Knights of Columbus. But then Bill Cooper says that might not be right because the content of this oath makes it seem like it probably comes from either the Society of Jesus, aka the Jesuits, or the Knights of Malta. Whatever the case, he says he just included it so you, the reader, knows beyond a shadow of a doubt 
that blood oaths to secret societies like this do indeed exist, even if he can't even prove the one he's using as an example is real or who it belongs to. This chapter should have been jettisoned from the book. It should have been cut out and thrown into the ocean. It is nonsense. The oath, if you want to check out the book and read it, is pretty crazy. For one thing, it says the person taking this oath is bound to it even when they are a cadaver, which, yeah, that seems easy to enforce. But also there's nothing indicating where it came from, if it's real, if any group actually makes anyone pledge this oath, or if someone just wrote this thing up for the funds. No clue. No clue. And at the end of that chapter, he gets off into a thing that I've expressed my frustration about on this podcast many times. I'm referring to that thing where a conspiracy theorist type will, in a book or video or whatever, say something along the lines of, I'm just presenting the evidence, you decide for yourself. In this case, the specific line he gives in regards to that oath document is, you must be the ultimate judge of its authenticity. The truth will win. And you know what? He's wrong. It's actually his job to determine the authenticity of something like that. And it's a job he neglects pretty badly in that chapter. And you see that in even more dramatic fashion in the next chapter, which is called Secret Treaty of Verona, in parentheses, Precedent and Positive Proof of Conspiracy. Now, that's a wild claim. He is saying that what you're going to read in this chapter is absolute proof that a conspiracy of the type he's referring to actually exists. In this case, it's more congressional record stuff, this time from February 1916. And that congressional record cites a document that was quoted and entered into the congressional record, but that originally appeared in a publication called the American Diplomatic Code. And this document records a Senate conversation about something called the Secret Treaty of Verona, which is an alleged treaty agreed to in 1822 that allowed the deposed European monarchies to continue ruling behind the scenes, but with elected officials and elections still happening to appease the public and make them think they actually have some say in things. The theory is called the Black Nobility. Which, again, great name. And that is exactly what Bill Cooper is describing in this book, is a secret group of leaders who actually run things while the people we vote for just kind of act as figureheads to placate us and make sure we don't revolt over having no more say in anything that happens in the world ever again. Unfortunately, this document that Bill Cooper says is proof positive of a conspiracy is actually a well-known forgery. And it took me about a minute of research to find that out. And I know what you're thinking. Sure, but Adam, you have the internet. And Bill Cooper did not. Well, for starters, yes, he did. He died in 2001. Sure, the internet wasn't that robust in 1991 when this book came out, but he had a lot of internet years following that, even if it still wasn't quite the research tool it is now. But also, regardless of that, the source I found that calls out the Secret Treaty of Verona as a forgery is from 1935. And the fact that it's damn near 90 years old, but also on the internet, should tell you it's not from some obscure and hard-to-find publication. It's an article called The Secret Treaty of Verona. 
a newspaper forgery from the September 1935 edition of the Journal of Modern History. It's written by a guy named T.R. Schellenberg, who I've never heard of, but is described as having ideas that are, quote, part of the foundation for archival theory and practice in the United States, end quote. There is absolutely zero chance Bill Cooper did not see this article at some point prior to publishing this book. In which case, you should have lots of questions about his motivation for still writing this section the way he did. Because reminder, he subtitled this chapter, Precedent and Proof Positive of Conspiracy. If he didn't see this article at any point while researching this chapter, you should have lots of questions about his research skills, if nothing else. Whatever the case, I'll link to the T.R. Schellenberg article. Just a heads up, you'll have to pay $20 to do your own research with it, but I'll link to it. I will tell you that he goes pretty hard in the paint, citing all sorts of valid reasons why the secret treaty of Verona is bullshit, with my favorite being this one that I'll quote verbatim. Here goes. The sixth article contained an anachronistic reference to the war with Spain, which had not yet begun at the supposed time of the signature of the treaty. End quote. Whoops, it's a pretty glaring error, referencing a war that had not yet happened. He also mentions at the end of the article that lots of historians used to reference the secret treaty of Verona as being the impetus for the Monroe Doctrine, but that most people realize now that is incorrect. And again, now meaning 1935. So he wasn't the only person, even way back then, who realized the secret treaty of Verona was a forgery. I'll also link you to an academic journal from 1971 that mentions the secret treaty of Verona being a fabrication. Apparently, Bill Cooper, the granddaddy of the do-your-own-research movement, was terrible at doing his own research. Either that, or he's just lying. And I'm leaning toward that explanation, personally. Something that came up on last week's bonus episode was that Behold a Pale Horse first gained popularity among the New York prison population. And that happened at the exact same time the crack epidemic hit its peak in New York. There were more than 5,000 murders in New York between 1990 and 1991. And at that exact moment, in ways that no one can explain to this day, this book just starts making the rounds in New York prisons. What makes me uneasy about that is something I haven't mentioned yet about this book, which is that at several stops along the way, Bill Cooper implies or straight out says that there is nothing that can be done to stop what he claims is happening in this book. I don't think this book was trying to disseminate information. I think it was trying to extinguish hope. Something about reviving the secret treaty of Verona decades after it had been discredited and citing it as proof of why your claims are real just makes me not trust Bill Cooper, even if he did eventually get murdered by the government. And this chapter isn't the last time that he would revive a previously discredited and highly controversial document in this book. More on that later. Chapter 5. Goodbye, USA! Hello, New World Order. This is a very confusing chapter. It starts with Bill Cooper explaining how the Constitution works. Literally. And then he argues that things like executive orders, which used to be called national security directives, have allowed the executive branch to usurp the Constitution because executive orders amount to laws and the executive branch isn't supposed to make laws. And you know what? I reckon that's true. But it also seems like a completely different issue than a secret government is controlling the world. Because, again, in this scenario, it's the for real government doing all the bad 
Not the secret government, but they're apparently doing it to achieve the goals of the secret government that the real government doesn't even know about. Of course, FEMA comes up in this section. Cooper's argument is that at any moment now, as a result of some unnamed national emergency, FEMA will show up and wrestle control away from local and state governments, and that they'll only be able to do that if the Constitution is suspended and martial law is declared. From there, he asserts that once the Constitution has been suspended and FEMA takes control, our secret government will announce their ascension to our real government, and that the new government will be based in Bluemont, Virginia, at the now relatively well-known Mount Weather facility. In both cases, he's employing a classic conspiracy theory tactic here. By taking a thing that already does and should exist and acting like its existence in and of itself is controversial. Take FEMA, for example. Reflect on your true crime documentaries for a moment. What happens when, say, a massive crime happens in a small town where local officials aren't really equipped to handle it properly? Usually the FBI is going to swoop in and either outright take over the investigation or at least help out in whatever way they can. Why in the hell would something like that not exist for natural disasters? If you live in a town of 2,500 that is protected mostly by a volunteer fire department, who are you going to call if something happens that's beyond their ability to handle? Trump? You gonna call Trump? No, FEMA shows up in those instances. At least you better hope they do. It's dependent on where you live in the country. They might not. Am I right, New Orleans? As for Mount Weather, it's where the government goes if the government has to go somewhere. Politicians were taken there by helicopter on 9-11. Again, where do you want them to go? Starbucks? Buffalo Wild Wings? I'm sure they'd prefer it. That FEMA and Mount Weather both exist makes perfect sense, but Behold a Pale Horse presents their existence as proof of a secret government conspiracy. And like, don't believe it. Your real government is evil enough, and there are things you can do to fight them. Anyway, get a load of the title of Chapter 6. You ready? Chapter 6, H.R. 4079 and FEMA, a tool that can be used to establish the police state. Patriots and tax protesters, you must never be found at home on any holiday. Your life depends on how well you can obey that rule. No shit, that seems to be the entire title of Chapter 6. Like Fiona Apple wrote it. Either that or Bill Cooper is really bad at making it clear where chapter titles end and where the actual chapter begins. I'll accept either answer. This chapter of the book is where the idea that someday FEMA is going to round up true patriots and send them off to one of many concentration camps conveniently located around the country. This is where that idea gained popularity. But once again, that doesn't mean this is where the idea started. In the book, Bill Cooper reprints, word for word, a pamphlet written by a guy named Dr. William R. Pabst called Concentration Camp Plan for U.S. Citizens. And that pamphlet is the genesis of the FEMA concentration camp theory. But it took Bill Cooper to make this theory a talking point among the mainstream right wing, which is a phrase I just made up, but you know what I mean. For lack of a better way to put it, I think this book was supposed to start something. It shows up on the scene right as black people are being disproportionately incarcerated at way higher levels than usual. White nationalists who weren't actually white nationalists are having their compounds burned to the ground. And George H.W. Bush is going in front of the world and saying the New World Order has arrived. I don't think Bill Cooper's book was meant to fight 
any of that. I think it was part of that. So much of this book is just discredited documents presented as if they haven't been discredited. And then that's supplemented with assurances that there is nothing you can do to stop any of this short of starting a civil war. He says that right up top in this book. Nothing will stop what he's talking about short of a civil war. And since we're talking about a book that's thrown out wild conspiracy theories, I'll do that myself and say this book feels like it was meant to incite a new enemy the United States could fight with the Cold War coming to an end. Whether that worked or not is a topic for a whole other episode, I guess. But what's important to get across right now, at least for me personally, is that I used to trust this book and I don't trust this book anymore. Also, what bothers me about every FEMA conspiracy is this question. Why would the government need a second secret government to impose martial law? Is FEMA working with the secret government? Because they're definitely working with the real government. So again, does the real government know about the secret government or not? And if they do, doesn't that kind of just make them all one big American government that is the real problem? So many questions. Speaking of that, Let's talk about Chapter 7, Anti-Drug Abuse Act of 1988, parentheses, Preparation for the Police State, an analysis. This chapter is all about how the Anti-Drug Abuse Act of 1988 was a very bad thing. And I agree with that. You'll get no argument from me. What I take issue with is the things Bill Cooper takes issue with. Case in point, here's a quote from Behold a Pale Horse. It is now illegal to mail or send locksmith equipment to anyone but a locksmith. Many common tools can be classified as locksmith equipment. End quote. Did that part of the Anti-Drug Abuse Act of 1988 send a chill down your spine? Probably not. But Behold a Pale Horse acts like it should. Same deal with this passage. Quote, this is a big one. The act orders a study to be made on whether to withdraw $100 bills and $50 bills from circulation. This would virtually propel us into a cashless society. End quote. Honestly, that sounds like very run-of-the-mill government study type of stuff to me. But here's my real problem with this section of the book. Two problems, actually. If this is a book that is claiming to be exposing all the evil shit the government is doing in the name of incarcerating black people, how do you not mention the Anti-Drug Abuse Act of 1986? That's the other one that Joe Biden wrote that mandated that sentences for crack convictions should be way more harsh than sentences for powder cocaine convictions. How does that not come up? If for no other reason than because that is a thing people could take action against and speak up about and ideally change. That did happen. It took deep into the 2000s for it to happen. But unlike what Bill Cooper claims throughout this book, which is that there's nothing you can do to stop any of this, the Anti-Drug Abuse Act of 1986 is a thing that, had it come up in this book, people could have addressed it. There were absolutely ways to take that up with your elected officials. But not if you think the Bilderberg group did it and that fighting them is hopeless. Also, another glaring omission when it comes to the Anti-Drug Abuse Act of 1988 that Bill Cooper does not mention, it reinstated the federal death penalty. How does that not come up in your book about how the Illuminati is enforcing population control on the world? Because it absolutely does not. Bill Cooper breaks down basically every other aspect of the law including questioning why a law meant to fight money laundering would want to examine bank transactions over $10,000. But at no point does he say, oh yeah, also, the federal government can execute you for all this now. How does that not even get an honorable mention? Unless someone somewhere who may have commissioned this book was hoping it's the part Looky Lose would talk about the least. 
I don't know. Chapter 8. Are the sheep ready to shear? Ugh. Such an exciting chapter name for such a boring chapter. This is mostly just a reprint of a 1990 article about an Oklahoma tax law. The article Cooper reprints in the book is called Oklahoma HB 1750, The Police State's Test Case. It was written by a guy named Gary North, who called Oklahoma HB 1750 one of the scariest pieces of socialistic police state legislation to arrive on the scene to date. It's a very short chapter. Gary North's argument is that this law allows for Oklahoma authorities to enter the home of anyone who they think isn't paying their fair share of taxes and calculate the value of all their stuff. But I read up on it a little. All this law was saying is that if the tax people think you're lying about how much stuff you own, they might show up and ask for permission to enter your residence, like the fucking vampires that they are. And if you let them, they can go through your stuff and decide if you're lying about what you own. But if you don't let them, they have to get a warrant. Unless I'm missing something, this sounds like very standard government stuff. Pay your fucking taxes, people. My God. All right. Let's talk about one more chapter in this first of two episodes about Behold a Pale Horse. Chapter 9, Anatomy of an Alliance. I will give Bill Cooper big, big credit for one thing. His conspiracy theories never boil down to the Jews did it. In fact, his argument is that the New World Order is such a huge endeavor that no one single group could pull it off. Isn't the Illuminati one single group? Yes, the Bilderberg group. But they're a group that consists of lots of other groups, you see. So in that case, one group can control the entire world, okay? Stop asking so many questions. Anyway, that's what chapter 9 is about. It's called Anatomy of an Alliance, and in this chapter, we're back to talking about the Bilderberg group and how they came to be. Cooper kicks off the chapter with his declaration that the Jews are not the ones doing this, and neither are the Nazis or the Muslims. It's not any of them. It's all of them, and so many more groups. We went through the list earlier. I'm sure you memorized it. He says the driving force behind the formation of the Bilderberg Group and their evil plans was the baby boom that happened after World War II. He says intellectuals of the day looked into it and determined that if something wasn't done to curtail population growth, then the world would basically end by the year 2000. Two different studies were conducted, both taking multiple years, and they both came to the same conclusion. To stop population growth, the world would need to lower the birth rate and increase the death rate. And I'm like, yeah? It took several years of research to come up with less babies and more death as the solution to curbing population growth? That seems like option number one. Whatever the case, Cooper's argument is that upon receiving this news, the various powers that be decided they needed to do anything and everything to get this problem under control. Here's a quote. Those in power immediately formed an alliance and set about bringing the recommended changes to fruition and through propaganda, mind control, and other manipulations of the masses. The Illuminati's prayers had been answered. End quote. Okay, so is the Illuminati doing the population control or are the governments of the world doing it and the Illuminati is just happy about it? Very confusing. Anyway, to deal with the birth rate issue, birth control methods were developed, the women's liberation movement was launched to encourage abortions, and homosexuality was encouraged because, you know, they don't make babies. But none of that helped and the population kept growing. So then they turned to increasing the death rate by way of a program called MK Naomi carried out at Fort Detrick in Maryland. And what was the point of MK Naomi? To create a plague that would target undesirable populations. 
And that plague, of course, was AIDS. And you know what? That makes for a good place to stop. One reason being, I'm just clean, tired of talking now, and I need a break. I'm probably as tired of talking as you are of listening to me. But also, this makes for a good stopping point, because this chapter of Behold a Pale Horse, probably more than any other, deserves a lot of extra attention and explanation. At the end of the day, population control is the foundation of the Bilderberg Illuminati conspiracy being pushed in Behold a Pale Horse. So we should dwell on it for a little bit. And we will on the next free episode of Conspiracy the Show. Just not today. That free episode will be up in a couple weeks. Next week, Olivia's back for another bonus episode about a UFO investigation carried out by the one institution you've always hoped would look into the matter. That, of course, being online tabloid TMZ. They did a UFO show. We're going to talk about it. And then after that, we'll wrap up our deep dive into Behold a Pale Horse. And then who knows what we'll cover after that. I do actually know exactly what we're covering after that. But things change. Who knows if the internet will even still exist by that point. I don't want to get people's hopes up. What if something happens and I have to figure out a way to mail them out on cassette like Bill Cooper used to do with his radio show after he wrote Behold a Pale Horse? We'll get into all that. Until then, I think that's it. Go read Behold a Pale Horse if you want, or just listen to me talk about it on these episodes. That'll be good enough. It's like Cliff's Notes, you know? All right, let's get out of here. Adam, say goodbye. Goodbye, everybody. We love you. 